This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. Today's guest makes me want more names. It's Jeremy Wilms, and we'll go through all of his different names throughout this episode. But each one has a reason. Jeremy is his family's musical version of Third Time's Charm. He's managed to study and play guitar with some amazing people. After college, he moved from Duluth, Georgia to New York City and kept studying in the form of open jam sessions with his neighbors and some naked people. Jeremy is a guitar player but started getting actual work after he picked up the bass. That led to him playing with the legendary Chico Hamilton and Antibalas. His time in Antibalas opened more doors for him, like the time the band literally split in two and one half played live shows and the other half, Jeremy's half, eventually played on Broadway in the show based on the life of Fela Kuti. That led to an unusual and slightly awkward session with Jay-Z and Beyonce that has never been released. Jeremy also talks about being in a wedding band with Elvis Costello and tells the story of Ornette Coleman's leftover Burger King. These are perfect examples of his being open to new and unusual experiences, like arranging strings for Run the Jewels, studying with Michael Mossman for a master's in composition, and moving back to Georgia during COVID. That's been a big turning point in how he writes, and you can really hear it in the new album, The Fighter. Definitely check that out on Bandcamp or jeremywilms.com. Follow him on Instagram at jer underscore wilms, J-E-R-E, for album and tour info. Follow us at Performance ANX on X and Instagram, and you can show us your love with coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or buying merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now get into your fighting stance and check out Jeremy Wilms on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Perfect. All right. Hey, everybody. My name is Jeremy Wilms, and I'm here on Performance Anxiety, and uh, I'm going to be talking about my new record, The Fighter, which came out December 8th. You can get it at Bandcamp, www.jeremywilms.bandcamp.com, my favorite place, or you can go to The Evil Empire and listen to it on Spotify at all. Um, But really glad to be here and uh, check the record out and keep listening to this podcast because it's fantastic. Yeah, man. Do I have to do it again? <laughs> okay. I guess to start this all off, I'm recording in a whole new space. My wife created this amazing room when my daughter moved out, and uh, we just kind of finished it. And this is the very first episode I'm recording in it. Nice. I feel I feel lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I moved the equipment from one room to another, so you know what happens there. Something doesn't work like it used to. So yeah, I'm only do. getting, I'm only getting even one ear right now. <laughs> All right. Mono. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to monkey around with things. Take your time, man. I'm not on a, I'm not on a tight time, oh, but second, I just lost it completely. There we go. The stupid headphone amp is just being finicky now. So yeah, I, I understand. Oh, well, we'll make it work. Spent, trust me, man. I was going to say, I just spent my first week recording audio for video, basically doing lot like, you know, boom mic and uh, lavalier mics and all that stuff. And man, anything that can go wrong will is it's that that is not fun. fun scenario. What's funny is I recorded a little voiceover thing. I'm part of a podcast network and I, I recorded a little voiceover piece and that worked fine. Right. So I'm like, okay, great. So I figured out I'll just hook it up and get started with Jeremy just like normal and that's when it's something important it's yeah yeah when it when it's actually your thing yeah that's when it's, 
the yeah. uh, the voiceover yeah. is no big deal. This is. I am aware. I'm aware of technology. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see. So I get this. This is kind of throw me for a, a loop here. So, so the way this I, I try to do this is not necessarily chronologically, but I do like to find out how you got into music initially, you know, and in, and kind of go from there because you wouldn't be where you are now without getting into it in the first place. So, and the deeper I dug into your career, the more questions I had. So, nice. so, you know, you're from, are you, you're from the Atlanta area originally? Well, I mean, sort of originally I went to high school here, you know, my dad was, my dad got a job here in the, in the, um, 80s and i moved i was born in miami actually weirdly enough uh basically first generation immigrant parents but um yeah but uh i i um moved up here and then i lived sort of in the north like northeast suburbs what's it's like gwinnett county is what it is when it was in the 80s when it was like literally like dirt we lived on a dirt road it was like farmland turning into suburbs my dad commuted you know 20 minutes down to get down to downtown Atlanta, which was like a lot then oh, now yeah. that, that same drives like an hour and a half. But, yeah. uh, yeah, you know, and, uh, and, um, I grew up there. I went to high school. Then I, I went to North Carolina for a year and then went to, wound up going to Georgia state for my undergraduate degree. Oh, go Panthers. Yeah, it was great, man. I loved it. It was, I, I, well, I did, I did have one little, like one semester at UGA and, uh, it didn't jive with me. Cause like I was getting, I was going up there thinking like, you know, oh, I'm going to be with like a bunch of, I'm going to meet REM. It's going to be awesome. And it was just like frat guys puking, you know, on my doorstep every, you know, every night. And I just, it was, it was way too much football for me, or at least my experience <laughs> as being a student there. I was just like, get me out of here, man. <laughs> um, so yeah, I went to Georgia state and by that time I had already, I, so I, I kind of got into music when I moved to Georgia, I moved here. I was, I was actually like 12 when we moved here and, um, you know, I was kind of always like a small, you know, kind of smaller kid, not really into the sports thing, moved yeah. from, you know, the Miami area to like, you know, sort of Duluth, Georgia in the, in the eighties, which was like, you know, guys would get on the school bus in their full, like hunting fatigues on Friday, you know, and they, yep. They literally, this guy, I remember talking to this kid literally when I first moved up here, I became friends with him, but his name was Buck Bush. And on Friday he was in full fatigues. And I I thought I was like, Oh, are you in like, you know, ROTC or something? And he was like, no, I go hunting with my family. And I was like, Oh, you go hunting on the weekends. He's like, yeah. I was like, what do you hunt? And he's like, bear. I'm like, really? You hunt bear? And he's like, yeah, with bow and arrow. Oh, <laughs> his family would go hunting. He and his dad and his brothers would go hunting black bear in the Georgia mountains with bows and arrow. I was just like, where am I? I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I lived in Alabama for 10 years. Uh, so oh, yeah. I met my wife and, and all. we started our family down there before moving up to Virginia. And yeah. they had the same thing, like with the uh, wild hogs and the, you know, they have, yep. they have spear season for that shit. Like, I know. Like, <laughs> you can go bow and hunting, but you can also do that shit with a spear for some, some it's insane. Who the hell it's does that? For some man getting in touch with the primal root. I mean, we're going to probably wind up all going back that way anyway, at some point. But, I think uh, about that a lot myself. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not. So I was like, you know, I was sort of, uh, not 
fitting in when I, you know, I had long hair and an earring by the time I was like 14 and not fitting in. And so, but my dad was, I, I come from kind of a line of, of sort of frustrated musicians for one reason or another. My, my grandfather on my dad's side was sort of wanted to be an opera singer, was training, um, but he was in Germany and the war kind of messed his whole thing up. I mean, the music part of it, of it was the smallest thing that got messed up, but that kind of derailed his thing. And then, yeah. you know, my dad grew up in Jersey and um, was just kind of an amateur, you know, sort of like a rock guy, like Weekend Warrior, but him and his brother had a band in the fifties and they played kind of like instrumental and like surf rock and did weddings and stuff. And oh, cool. it, yeah, but his, you know, my grandfather sort of discouraged him because, you know, he was like, if you're not going to learn how to read music, you're not really playing music. Blah, blah, blah. So my dad sort of became an engineer and just kind of like quit it. So I'm like, I'm like third wow. in line, you know, third in line. Of, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see. I'm still, <laughs> it's still a work in progress. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I think like a lot of people in of, of my generation or my, you know, my decade, um, my dad sort of like, you know, did really well for himself, kind of came from nothing and, you know, went to college and got a good degree and had a string of like pretty good jobs that he absolutely hated. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and when he saw when I was like 13, 14, getting into music, he, he and my mom just really encouraged it. And, um, you know, I feel, I feel really lucky that that happened, uh, you know, um, but they, you know, but also like other people I've talked to in my generation, it's like encouraged, but had no idea what, like what it really meant to be a, a musician. You know, <laughs> my dad's like, Oh yeah, you know, you, it's going to be great. You can be a studio musician, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And it's like, you know, <laughs> by, by 2001, everything's just like, there is no music industry anymore. Oh, um, kidding. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of like, so I, I kind of, played in and, and by the way just like stop me if i'm rambling or no, no, no. this is what the show's about man this is yeah. I just just a conversation yeah so. nice man we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more. Plus, an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. So early on, I was like, play, I didn't really know what I liked. I liked like Van Halen and, you know, I'm like 12 years old and trying to play like kind of hair metal, but mo- but like in um, bass. And then when I'm like 13, 14, I meet some older kids and they're all into sort of a mix of like Sabbath, but also like Judas Priest and, you know, the stuff that's like happening then. And then like Zeppelin and, and quickly I was like playing bass in the band with these guys that were two or three years older than me. And I was showing them all the guitar parts and I was like, Oh, I, somehow I play guitar better than these guys. And, and, uh, you know, and it was kind of like this weird thing. Like I found my place, you know, and then, you know, so I was kind of fitting in with the metalheads, and then I was like sort of getting into, you know, violent femmes and REM and all that stuff was happening. And that was opening me up in the meantime, my dad was always listening to jazz and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I was kind of getting this, um, sort of broader thing. And when I decided I I might want to make a go for it, I hooked up with this guy. I was really lucky in, in the town. There wasn't shit in Duluth, Georgia at that point. But what there was, was there was a little music store and there was a guy that taught guitar. His name was Joe Carpenter and he had played with Otis Redding among other people. And he was, yeah, it was like, it was just one of those weird things. It could have easily been a guy that had played with no one that knew nothing, but like, that was just the guy that was four miles from my house or whatever, you know, lucked out. And that guy had studied with, I don't know if you're in, in, the kind of jazz world there's you know there's this in the the early on there were these guitar players that would play sort of like jazz ish but kind of pop like solo guitar like jimmy uh johnny smith not jimmy smith johnny smith the guitarist okay. chord melody stuff like beautiful stuff you know sort of like the jazz side of like what chet atkins would be and and, all, and that sort of guitar culture so this guy had studied with johnny smith and was really into him oh. and had all these kind of like written out transcriptions of solo guitar stuff and he would show them for me and I would learn them by ear, not knowing what I was playing. It was stuff was like so far over my head. You know, I was like basically like new power chords and like, uh, (laughs) yeah, 
could do like you know some Eddie Van Halen shit. Like, yeah, the, and he suddenly show me like all these altered chords, and I'm just like memorizing them out of context, not even really knowing the tune. Um, wow. Yeah, and then I started learning some jazz stuff. I kind of like he helped me learn how to read enough, um, and he was also kind of into classical guitar. So that that kind of all kind of was happening for me. And I got, I got sort of obsessed, man. And I would spend just hours in my room playing along with records and everything from like playing along with James Brown records to playing along with like Hooster Do records to like Joe Pass solos, you know, futile, which was a futile endeavor. (laughs) I mean, eventually I, eventually I got there, but like at 15, I, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, doing that in your room with like, again, no, no real context. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of what happened. And, um, you know, I was in a couple bands in high school. One of the bands I was in, some of the guys kind of went on to do some sort of regional stuff. There was a, um, they were kind of an, a straight edge band named Active Faith and they kind of had a, they kind of had a thing going. It was like a hardcore thing and they, oh, okay. they did all right. And, um, you know, but I didn't really get anything going. And then, uh, until, and, but I decided I wanted to study. So, you know, eventually I wound up at Georgia state and, um, and that's where things kind of really sort of started to take form for me. And were you going yeah. there for, for something music related? As you, as yeah, you? I was, I went there to, to study basically to study classical guitar, but I was minoring in psychology as well. Cause I was like, I'm not sure how, this works, you know, like, again, I had, had a lot of encouragement, but no sort of like roadmap, you know, ah, no direction. and, you know, I kind of, I kind of like did, did it both, but wound up just kind of diving into classical guitar with this guy, John Sutherland, who has passed away, but he was, uh, he was sort of like a regional guitar guru. He, he had studied, he had taken like master classes with Segovia and, you know, he was like connected to like the, he was like in there, you know, he knew like Christopher Parkening and he would bring these people to Atlanta. And so he was teaching at Georgia state and he didn't play at that point, but he was a really good teacher formative for a lot of, a lot of like guitar players down here of my generation, like know who John Sutherland was. He was, he was, you know, kind of guy, um, like guru guy in a way, very, 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 yeah. Like very, very, actually some of my first sort of encounters with kind of like Zen, Zen philosophy was through him, you know, sort of like guitar philosopher guy. So that, that kind of happened and, and I was, they, they had a burgeoning little jazz program and I would, uh, there were a couple of musicians there, you know, weren't a lot, you know, most, most people were like heading to New York, but I I just wasn't ready for that. Like not musically, musically, I probably could have hung to some extent, but just more like, you know, I was kind of an introvert. It just seemed like too much. I had gone up there a few times. And so I kind of hung and then there were, um, few people that were really formative that just happened to be in that program at the same time. They were, they had a graduate program. So there was a guy who at the time, his name was Woody Williams. He's changed his name to Kina Boto and he doesn't really play music anymore, but anyone from Atlanta that is a musician that hears the name Kina Boto knows what I'm talking about. And, oh, okay. uh, yeah, he was, he was drummer, but then he, you know, he went somewhere in South America and learned how to build his own drums and just kind of had his whole, like, sort of like, I don't, I don't want to like pinpoint him too much, but sort of like the Atlanta Milford Graves or something, you know, 
younger guy and, and just like really happening. And that guy, I had, I played with him a lot and he's, he and a bass player named Mamaniji Azania, these two guys kind of like formed me in a lot of ways, but they were both also doing their own thing. And, um, yeah. And then in the program, you know, Georgia state at that time, they had, they kind of had money for the jazz program. So I would also get, they would bring people down from New York for like two, three weeks at a time. So I got, you know, and since it was a small student body, you'd get like two weeks of one-on-one with like Joe Lovano or like wow. Kenny Werner, you know, all these people. And that was really great too. And, and, um, what happened to me was when I was finishing up, Kenny Werner was down there. I was studying with him and he was just basically like, Hey man, you should move to New York, you know, and come study with me. Oh and wow! I was like, really? Yeah. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, you know, come, come and do it. And so, so I did it, you know, and that, that promptly ended my jazz career pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know, was, I mean, he's awesome, man. It was great, but it was like, I, you know, one of the very first lessons I'll never forget this. And I tell this to people all the time. He's like, yeah, man. Okay. You can play great, but like the world doesn't need any more jazz guitar players. Like what, what are you, who are you, you know, what right. do you do? And that was got done with a lesson. I was like, wow, man. That was amazing. I just paid that guy 150 bucks to tell me like, you know, I don't know who I am. (laughs) Stop doing what you're doing and just think about who you are. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. But he was, he was great. I don't know if you're familiar with him either, but he's, um, you know, so he's this pianist that has, you know, and he's one of those, like, he's a divisive feature. Some people are like, oh, that guy's jive, you know, or, you know, whatever, but he has this whole method of teaching and, it's got, you know, he's gotten results. Like some of his students are like, you know, sort of like big kind of modern jazz guys like Chris Potter and the, those kind of guys. Um, but he's like, uh, he has this thing called effortless, effortless mastery is his, is his thing. And so it's about basically mastering your instrument or your kind of you mastering yourself. It's like a very holistic thing. It's a little, little new agey, um, in a way. Um, and that's why I say it's like kind of divisive. Some music, younger musicians, a lot of times are just like, Oh, that guy, whatever, (laughs) you know, he's jive. But, um, (laughs) but it was, it was really great, man. I mean, the biggest thing for me was like, Oh, I don't have to like be a jazz guitarist. You know, I don't have to be like pursuing this one thing I can be learning about. I don't, I can be learning about who I am this whole time, you know, instead of just like going down this like real specific rabbit hole. That's sort of like a music athletic kind of vibe. So, so you, you're following, you're learning from people who are basically telling you to, to find your own sound and you've got a lot of sounds. Yeah. You, you do so much. And I'm, I'm so curious to, to find out. Okay. So first of all, you also have a, a master's in composition. Yeah. Did you go right into that and then New York or did you do that? No, afterwards? no, I, I went to New York, studied with Kenny for about a year, um, off and on. And then I, um, I, it, so I did the thing that every aspiring jazz guitarist should do. And that is that I, I learned how to play bass really well. And then I started working and I, I, I mean, it's not exactly like that, but basically I was, I was, um, I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 96. And that's kind of like when you could still, you know, my rent was like 325 bucks a month. I shared a huge apartment with the drummer. We had like all night jam sessions at our apartment. And I was just, it was like a time and a place 
So I was in this neighborhood where there was, there was like a big sort of like, not just free jazz, but kind of free jazz and kind of like experimental kind of, I guess what they're calling like what might be called like intellectual jazz or whatever stuff. That's like shifting meters and taking influences from different places and okay. you know, all that stuff. So there was a scene of that, but there was also like, you know, the, the seeds of like the yeah and TV on the radio and, and people in all these bands and Antibalas, which is an Afrobeat band from New York, um, yeah, yeah. that, that was very important kind of in my career. But the thing that's weird about this and um, that's hard to explain to people because it like these like first two or three years sort of defined so much of what the work I got and did was because I was in a scene and I was hanging and there were multiple apartments like mine within walking distance. So there's always some kind of party or something going on. And then there were also these people that had like garage spaces where they would have music and like sound systems and DJs and crazy art parties with naked people and drugs, you know, people handing out like acid on Listerine strips and like people blowing, blowing fire with a, with a like six and a half foot ceiling room, you know, just like, crazy shit. You it sounds know? amazing. And it was, it was a really interesting time. And I, I just, you know, I was there and I was just going out to everything, you know, going out to everything, playing with everyone I could. And, um, you know, a lot of times in these sort of late night kind of jam sessions at people's apartments or loft spaces, or they weren't even jam sessions. It was like the concept was of the band was not to like play music for musicians. It was like to make people dance so that people would stay and hang. And I just always gravitated towards the bass. I loved that feeling of like locking into with the drummer and like having people kind of partying around me. That was like my, at that point, my life in my early twenties, that was like my, my happy place, right. you know? And, um, you know, it's, it, it does definitely in my experience, it was like, as soon as I was opened up to kind of playing bass, that's when I started working. And, um, I like that. I started playing bass, then started working. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I started really working. I mean, I had a, a gig when I got to New York with like a Canadian artist where I was playing kind of rockabilly guitar stuff and touring, but it, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't really playing guitar. I was kind of like style, stylist, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Feeling, feeling a spot. But like on bass, you know, what happened was really, um, you know, I got in a band of my own that was, that kind of did some stuff and, you know, I still have that connection. And then I hooked up with, uh, this guy, Aaron Johnson, who, who's a trombonist who now lives in, uh, he lives in the Bay area and he was the music director of Antibalis at that time. And Antibalis, if, you know, if you're familiar with them or not, they're like, uh, at that time. So we're talking the late nineties. They were sort of one of the only bands not in Nigeria that was playing the music of Fela Kuti and playing their own music influenced by that. So like right. the Nigerian musician Fela Kuti. Oh yeah. They, yeah. They like specialized in his stuff. And so it was, it was a funny band because it was like a few, it, and it still is this way. There was sort of a core and then there were like other band members, but that was sort of, you know, there were usually 13 people on stage, but there were maybe like 15 to 18 people involved in the band at any time. Oh, so, wow. I, yeah. So I kind of wound up being this like auxiliary guy in that band. Cause I could play the bass parts and some of the guitar parts. And then, um, I mean, I'm skipping a lot of stuff, but that kind of what happened in my career is, is that that happened. And then, 
just weirdly and sort of coincidentally, there was this guy who was trying to make a play about Fela Kuti's life, like basically like a bio play. And, um, and they called Fela's old manager who was in London. They were like, Hey, we're in New York. We need a band that knows this music. And he was like, you should call Auntie Ballas. So they kind of split Auntie Ballas into like a touring band and a band that kind of stayed in New York to work on this, this play. And, oh, wow. and, I, I, and I got that, I got in, that side of it, which oh, was, cool. which opened like so many doors. Like that was a, that was a, you know, the, one of the very quickly, like Questlove came on and be, it was producer wow. of the show later, Jay-Z and Beyonce were on there. And like being in that show sort of led to me both playing with the roots, you know, on, on their kind of jam session nights and also doing like a recording session with Beyonce, which never got released because of contractual issues so yeah when that happened that you were playing with chico hamilton though right that was that, at that, that time. Was, so chico was right before that yeah i left that out that and chico was like um chico was a crazy thing because that was i was playing mostly bass and i was playing guitar with this drummer named jeremy carlstead another jeremy and um he made a recording of us and Chico heard me and was like, you know, Oh, that guy sounds like Gabor. You know, he thought it, that he thought I sounded like Gabor Zabo, which is like, Oh, I love Gabor. It, oh my God, man. And like, you know, when someone says that about you, you're just like, I am not worthy. Yes. Of that. You know, <laughs> I'm not like, like that's some other level shit. I worked with Chico for a year. He was about 78 at that time in his like upper seventies yeah. and he was still gigging once a month. We had a gig once a month and it might be at a, <laughs> you know, it was like usually at a, at a, a sort of smaller venue or like a, you know, something like daytime. Cause he was getting up there, but man taught me so much. I mean, he taught me, he taught me basically how to comp. I had been playing guitar for like, you know, however many years at that point, probably like, you know, 15 or more years and I didn't know how to comp. And the first time I went to his place, he was like, we're playing this tune. He's like, all right, whole notes. And I'm like, what? And he's <laughs> like, just play the chord, whole notes on the downbeat, every bar. And I was like, every bar, he's like, every bar do that for the first. So I did that and stops me after the first course. Okay. Next course, Charleston. No, he didn't say that. He said, he said this, he said, I want you to play this. Uh, 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 uh. And I'm like, okay, and I'm doing that. And he's like, you know why that works? And I'm like, why? And he's like, it's the Charleston. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like shit that like, this is coming from the real, you know, and I was just like, oh my God, why did no one ever teach me? I mean, it's like the most basic shit ever, you know, and here I am trying to play like, you know, dyad voicings that are all tight and like, you know, go, going over the bar lines and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like whole notes on the downbeat. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it just changed. It changed everything in the way it was, a you know, it was kind of like we rehearsed every week and we played once a month, sometimes twice a week we'd rehearse. And it was like, um, you know, it was like a master class and there'd always be students coming in. So we had a core band, but then there'd be other people and he would or just take a simple melody and orchestrate it. It was all about arranging and orchestration with however many instruments you had, which it was, it was, uh, you know, it was like otherworldly, man. And I, I had to, and it was, a, I had this huge choice when the Fela thing happened because Fela thing. So I was doing the off Broadway Fela thing when I was playing with Chico and then, the Fela thing went to Broadway, which was like 
totally surreal. None of us had any idea that that's what was going to, you know, none of us were Broadway musicians. Right, yeah. like, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. You were like, we're like Afro-funk heads, you know, it's like, and just like, suddenly we're like, what? We're going to be on, at the Eugene O'Neill Theater every six days a week. Oh my God. So we're all just kind of tripping, but at the same time, you know, I was getting to the, I had never had a steady gig that could actually like make me some bread and I was getting to the, I was, you know, I was like, oh, I should do this. So I had a, I sat down with Chico and I was like, man, I have this opportunity and he was like, all right. He's like, okay, I think I know another guy, but, you know, I understand, but, you know, are you, you sure? And I was like, man, I, I I think so. And he's like, you go you go make the money, man. Yeah. Go make the, basically, he's oh, like, go man. make the money. You, you should do that. It was hard, you know, and I, 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 yeah. I, I go back and forth. He, he lived about another eight years after that or so. Maybe, maybe not even, he lived until he was 88. So I I was probably playing with him when he was 80 already, but it was, it was, I I kept in touch with him and I went to his place. I even like rehearsed with him when I had a chance, but it was, uh, that was like a really hard decision, man. You know, imagine, oh my God. Yeah. Speaking of going to places and jamming, you ended up actually jamming with Ornette Coleman. How did, how did that happen? So this is all in the same thing. So okay. Ornette, it's it's sort of sort of connected to the Fela thing and sort of not. Um, there was a guy in the Fela band that had like a visual artist friend who is friends with Ornette. And if you if you know anything about Ornette, like Ornette was the kind of guy like you might be walking down you know Seventh Avenue or something or like fit or like you know go into a bookstore and Ornette might be there. And you might start talking to him and then the two of you, like he was, he was constantly like just inviting people to his loft, like strangers, you know, he's like kind of like dangerous old school, weird New York shit, you know, if it, it, it could happen. And so, um, this guy had a, this trumpet player had a friend who was going and just hanging at Ornette's place, like regularly. And, and so the trumpet player eventually got invited he started doing that and he built this rapport with Ornette. And then he brought me and a bass, uh, another bass player with him one day. And I had, I, I hung out with Ornette several times, but this one time, which was the first time I went to his loft, I had this experience. The first thing that was crazy was he, he had one of those places where you, you go up an elevator, you can't get in the elevator unless 
he knows who you are or someone or whoever his, whoever's there, like taking care of his business yeah. his manager or whoever knows who you are. And you get in the elevator and the elevator, you go up a few floors and the elevator opens up and it's like his apartment, right? Wow. There's no hallway or anything. It's just like opens up into this like pretty massive New York loft. So right? It's just like so, some of, a bunch of those eighties sitcoms where we, that I used to watch. Totally. It's like, or like, or like after hours or something, yeah. you know, it's just like this surreal shit. Right. right. So, so the, the door opens up, it's me, guy named Adam Roberts, who's a phenomenal bass player and a, and a really good drummer and the trumpet player, Jordan McLean. So we're, we're standing there and Ornette's just kind of blocking the door. And he says, you know, I have one question for you. You know, he's like, he's got this like crazy, like sort of southernness. You know, he's from Texas, so he's yes. got this like southern voice, but like real kind of light and soft. And he's like, "Are you free of the tonic?" And uh, I was like, at the in the moment, like you're talking to Ornette Coleman, you're like in Ornette Coleman's house, and you're like what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> and then like 30 seconds later, you're like, Oh, he's talking about music. Right. Yeah. Of course he's talking about music. Like, <laughs> are you free of the tonic before you can get in his apartment? Are you free of the tonic? That's the first, the question we got, we come in. So this is like the most crazy shit. I want to tell, I kind of want to tell this whole story because it's so wild. Go ahead, so man. I got in. no time limit. Yeah. So we get in and he's like, you know, again, it's like Southern hospitality. He's like, do you guys want a sandwich? Does anyone want a sandwich? And I was just like, Ornette Coleman's offering me a sandwich. I'll have a sandwich. I was the only, everyone else was just like, this is fucking weird. So I was like, I'll have a sandwich. And he goes and he takes out half of a Whopper with cheese in the wrapper and puts it in his toaster oven in the wrapper and starts warming it up. And, and some, and some cold fries. And he's like, hey, you know, here to eat and anyone want a Coca-Cola, he's got Coca-Cola and Burger King. Right. Oh. And he's trying to give us like his, his leftovers and his Cokes. And it's, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what, how am I supposed to behave like this? Right. So this is the precursor. And as it's happening, like a couple other people come, this artist friend of Jordan's comes and we're all hanging out and, you know, everyone's like having just sort of weird, disparate conversations. And in the back of Ornette's uh, loft, he had a room that's probably about the size of this room, maybe like a, you know, 20 by 10 or 20 by 12 room or something like that. Not okay. huge, but like bedroom size. Yeah. And uh, it's soundproof and there's drum set and there's, and my friend Adam had brought his bass. So we go in that room, my friend Adam, who's a bass player and drummer starts playing drums and I just kind of get his bass and I start playing his bass and we're kind of just like playing in there while other people are talking. And then Ornette comes in, sits down, takes out his horn and he starts playing with us. And so we're playing trio and we're kind of playing free, but within a few minutes, he starts playing, like he starts kind of going through like his greatest hits, right? So he starts kind of playing Lonely Woman. He plays the Sphinx. Might have played Broadway Blues. I can't remember what they all were, but it was like three or four of them. You know, he'd play one, he'd play the head, he'd solo, and then he'd kind of go into another one. And, you know, I, I knew all that shit. Adam knew all that shit. So we're like following him. But the most surreal thing was like there were these moments where there's something like they're musicians when you hear them live and you're like, oh, that that's what they really sound like in person. And on the record, they, this 
was insane. I felt like I was in an Atlantic record from like, it was the most surreal and strange thing I've ever experienced. Like being inside, I felt like I was inside Nornette Coleman record and we played for 20 or 30 minutes. Other people kind of came in and it started getting a little chaotic, you know, like uh, the other kind of instruments and kind of lost its sort of focus, but he kept playing. He hung out. We played for probably as you know, with a bunch of people kind of in and out, maybe an hour. And then, you know, people would trickle out and it would stop and no one talked about music at all. Like there was not a word about playing or any of that stuff. And it's funny. It's like, you know, I've had these experiences like, yeah, I wasn't in Ornette's band. Like I didn't play any gigs with Ornette, but I had this experience that's like really kind of surreal and kind of rarefied, you know, it's like, it's it's amazing because you, you you may not have been in his band, but how many people can say you kind of improved with him? Yeah. Yeah. I got to jam with Ornette. I mean, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, man. It was, I mean, it was like that and the Chico thing. It's, I, I don't know. I mean, there are a few, you know, obviously there are other things that have happened to me where I've been like, Oh shit, I can't believe this is happening. Um, but that was something else. Uh, yeah, actually, I want one other in that line. The other thing that was sort of like that is I, I played a uh, I played a wedding and Elvis Costello saying this guy's in love with you for the bride and groom. And, um, you know, I was in the backing band. I was kind of in the house band. We backed him up. I had a rehearsal with him and all that stuff. And that that was also another one of those things where you're just like, oh, my God, this person like he's just talking to me and he sounds like Elvis Costello. Of course it's fucking Elvis Costello, but like, it's like this thing where you're, you're, it's like a thing you've heard your whole life that you sort of almost don't believe is real. It's like mythical. Yeah. And suddenly it's, it's there in your face, you know? Um, yes. I, I, like, I know exactly what you mean. Cause it's, it's like, a, you've listened to their records for so long. You don't think of them as a person really. Right. Right. I, I'll tell you just a, a real quick story because I can I can relate a little bit. I had John Anderson from Yes on the podcast, and it was so weird because we were just talking. First of all, so it was to me it's just bizarre to have John Anderson from Yes on my podcast. <laughs> but then we're we're talking, and I don't even know how we got onto this subject, but we got onto the subject of the Tuvan throat singing. Oh yeah, yeah. And he started uh-huh. doing it. <laughs> Of course, of course he did. John Anderson, the, you know, his voice, like, you know, this falsetto. Yeah, yeah. And then all yeah, of a he's like, he's like a higher than he's like a, you know, a triple soprano or something. Yeah, exactly. It's like, but it was like listening to Tuvan Throat singing on helium. It was so weird, but it was amazing. I'm just like, I am so glad I'm recording this right now. Cause I gotta find, I gotta find that episode. Oh yeah. So, yeah, man. And all of this stuff is kind of like this weird, I mean, You know, I don't want to sound like ridiculous, but like I could tell not not as intense as playing with Ornette and his place, but I can tell stories like this, like on and on and on. And and a lot of it is just sort of like I was in New York at a place and a time and I was open to shit and I kind of like was able to sort of like navigate these situations, you know. Is that kind of how the Beyonce thing started? Because, yeah, that was was a a usual think is that you you end up doing a session but it never came out right right so what happened there was that was her and jay-z wound up being producers on the show and she was kind of obsessed with fela at the time apparently and the it was under the 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 whole idea was that some of the 
some of the band was going to get together with her and basically give her like a, a kind of like music lesson about how Fela's music works. Wow. Right. Cause his music's like really intricate. It's got a, it's got a very, you know, a lot of people, like especially jazz people there, they'll hear it and they'll be like, Oh, it's just one chord and the horns are out of tune. That's no good. It's like, but man, it is so layered and so deep and so kind of like connected to so many things that are like clave and all of these things that are, and just like, just sort of like concepts that we don't, that we kind of like don't deal with very much. much. Like the man himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very like intricate. So those were the auspices that were, that it was under when we showed up and it was like a full on studio with two or three producers, everything mic'd up and ready to go. And, and the manager of the band was just like, mm. Yeah, I don't know about this, yeah. you know, and so there was some back and forth and there was an agreement that we would play and be recorded. And it, it was weird. And it was sort of started as like, you know, oh, play a Fela song and explain to me what's going on. We would do that and we would go around the band and be like, and she was awesome. She was super cool yeah. and super humble and super interested and, and sincere, you know. Uh, I'm so seeing, good to hear. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, and you know, we'd all kind of explain what our parts were doing and how it, how it worked. And then it would be like, okay, can you play something like that? And, or their producer would come up and be like, Hey, can you play something in that vein? But like, and I had like two or three different producers kind of like trying to hum bass lines to me that like, you know, where it's like, dude, are you, are you, are you, are you, tone deaf or something like what are you what are you trying to tell me to play and i would just kind of smile and sort of play something knowing that and basically the manager was just like hey don't play anything that you're gonna regret not owning because uh. because we haven't signed anything so we kind of like did a few things you know her bass player at the time came over and wanted to show me something she played it and she was like now you you play it. and i was everyone it was this weird vibe it was like there were a lot of people there and everyone was trying to get a part in because maybe they would be on the next beyonce record yeah. and so you know we were we were all we kind of did our thing and mostly leaned on the fail stuff because we knew like if they're recording us playing fail stuff that's that's not us anyway you know no, and yeah and we got a session fee so it was cool we were i'm down to, but if i'm gonna be writing something you know i'm gonna I want the business to be square. And, but they exactly. did this. So they, they, they apparently did this with two or three bands. And one of the bands they used on some record, I don't remember what the record was that came out at that time. And there was a whole, like they had to get like, I think they got volunteer lawyers for the arts involved. They had to go through all this shit because basically they used all these guys playing and didn't, you know, didn't have, I don't think they even paid them for the set. We got paid cause we were like in this band and had a manager, but yeah. there was like, it, it was a little, it was a little odd. I so want to say that sounds, I think I remember hearing about that or reading about that or something. Yeah, it was strange. It was strange. And, and eventually everyone got paid that played on it. And I think most or everyone got credited, but it's really hard to tell because they were recording everything. I don't know. Maybe I'm on that record. I, I have no idea. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, and I, I'm okay. Not ever knowing, like, I don't really care, but, um, it was a strange situation. Um, you know, like that, but it was an interesting situation. Cause it was also like seeing, you know, I've done some kind of hip hop and R and B stuff, but like, it was interesting seeing how that world 
works and how all these people are uh, kind of like trying to get their voices in so that they can they can be like, I wrote that baseline, you know, yeah. I get whatever percentage, you know, and I understand that if that's your if that's where your world is, that's if that's your hustle, then go for it. You know, yeah. it's not my hustle, but if that's your hustle, that's that's your hustle. Exactly. You know? Everybody's got different motivations. Yeah, totally, totally, you know. So you've done some beyond beyond Beyonce. I mean, you've right. done some other really wild stuff. Like you played bass for the Gong Show and arranged yeah. strings for Run the Jewels and yeah. former podcast guest Tim Foyon. Oh man, Tim's my uh, Tim's my spirit animal. I loved him. <laughs> he was yeah, so dude. awesome. No, he's kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to like lay it into these terms, but he's basically kind of like been a mentor for me. I met, I met him like two weeks after I moved to New York. Oh, wow. We've been, we've been friends the entire time and super close. And actually the record that I'm putting out, we have, we have this kind of like label together, quote unquote label, you know, <laughs> basically put each other's stuff out and like a few other people's stuff on Bandcamp. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Um, but Tim, Tim's the best. Yeah. I, um, so I, so you were asking me earlier about the masters thing. So what happened to me is after Fela, I got injured on the tour of Fela. I actually, uh, bro, I was playing keyboards and, and bass on that, on the Broadway thing and on tour and on tour, I fell and, and kind of shattered a finger and, uh, oh left and I was out for like, you know, that was the end. Of, I, that was kind of like, it was, there was still some touring going on, but I, I sort of left at that point and I wound up, you know, I was married already and we had a kid and, um, and basically things kind of changed for me at that point. And, uh, yeah. So I was sort of like in New York a little bit more and, kind of like given, given up the fail thing a little bit. And one of my really good friends, Oh, yeah. So this is a few things happened. So I was, I was kind of like trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I just decided we had moved to Forest Hills, Queens and, um, Queens college is right there. And they have, I don't know, I don't know what it's like right now. It's CUNY Queens college, but it was like state school and you could get like the whole, the whole thing. Everyone, if you knew this, you knew this It's basically education wise, you were getting as good or better than going to Manhattan school and all these other places. I mean, it's like Mossman, uh, Berkman, Antonio Hart, like all of these just insanely great musicians there and, and full access to unlike the other schools where your teachers are like jazz superstars and they're never there. Um, and so I, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, I should just go there. It's two miles from my house. I should just go there and get a master's. I kind of talked to them and they were like, they were like, yeah, yeah, it's a little too late to get into like the performance thing. But if you want to do composition, you can do that. And so I, I did it and it was, it was great, man. And the, the I basically studied one-on-one -on -one with Michael Mossman. So if people know who he is. Oh, he's, wow. he, yeah, he was a jazz trumpet player for a while, but he's really mostly known as a, an arranger. Tons of incredible big band stuff. Joe Henderson, big band, um, but also orchestral stuff, like a really great orchestral writer. He wrote... He's written stuff uh, like concertos and stuff for Paquito de Rivera and all this oh, sort wow. of classical, like crossover classical stuff. Like the guy is like the amount of information this guy has in his brain is insane. It's it's nuts. Like everything about orchestration. So I, I laid I like went heavily into that and um, I was kind of doing that when Tim was making this record and I really wanted to like do a lot of strings on it. It's like some stuff that I'm 
super duper proud of, man. I just love the way it came out. And then the run the jewels stuff. And I, you know, I did some other stuff that was like a little less on the radar, but then the run the jewels stuff was, you know, kind of ties into the gong show goes back to like that early days. I had a band called chin chin in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands with these two brothers, one of the brothers, Moved to LA. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Chin Chin, but it's funny because I'm, I've run into this before. I do a lot of my research on Discogs. Uh-huh. It's not always accurate. It's usually pretty, it's usually fairly good, but right. I've, I like, I had Ken Andrews on from failure and I asked him about something he did and he's like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Right. I'm like, well, it says right here on Discogs, he did this. He said, I never did that. I'm like, oh right. shit. Well, the thing about Chinchin is there's like five Chinchins and on the internet, they're all like intertwined. Um, oh my gosh. But the Chinchin that I was in was this kind of like disco-y, you know, disco-y funk band, early 2000s. You know, we would, it was funny. It was like we were, it's at the time there was a lot of like, you know, sort of retro gang of four kind of funk disco, but we were like, we were like, no man, let's play like disco like janky disco you know um, i was listening to it I was, the flashing was awesome yeah i mean there's some great so it's these two brothers wilder and wilder zobi and, and uh torbett schwartz and they were very so when i started doing the fail out stuff we again these are like it, really they're they're my brothers not by blood but they are my brothers yeah. and uh and when i started doing the fail out thing we had a studio together for a while. We were making these records, doing all kinds of other stuff. And they kind of, they were started doing more hip hop production. They hooked up with LP, uh, the rapper, one of the half of the run, the jewels. And so they were kind of like helping him realize his like last couple solo albums before the run, the jewels happened. Cause he's, he's got, he's like a great producer, but he's notorious for sort of like getting into you know, getting himself, working himself into a corner and not being able to get stuff done. So these guys were just basically coming in and helping him like finish, you know, finish his vision out. And I hope that's an accurate way. I hope he, you know, he doesn't hear this and he's like, I'm not like that or whatever. He's an avid listener. I'm, I'm well aware. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I love that dude though. He's an awesome guy. And you know, so he also, his, he had the label Def Jux and they put out the Chin Chin records. Okay. friends with him wilder and torbett were friends with him and then they started doing the run the jewels stuff and then so this all ties together then wilder moved to la and he he's been friends with mike myers for like a very long time just sort of like uh you know totally like randomly you know uh, like kind of through mike's wife basically and so wilder got the gong show gig through Mike Myers, which is how I got on that. And then Torbit was, both of them were still working on run the jewels, but when they did run the jewels four, they had some samples that they wanted replayed and sort of enhanced that were like string samples. Okay. And, and so Jamie, you know, 
he was like, how do I get like a real string orchestra and tour? It was just like, you call Jeremy and he writes it out for you and he calls people. And that's basically what I did. I basically, I wrote the charts. I mean, I took what was there kind of took a lot of what Jamie explained to me. He wanted, you know, I mean, he's, he's got an incredible ear and he can play stuff. So he would sing me melodies and I would kind of write them out or he would even explain them to me. He's like, I want a descending glissando, like just a slide down and then, and then a run up or whatever. And I would just write it out. And then I called string players. I knew through doing this, you know, through just being around and playing with people and um, got them in the studio and basically recorded it for, for him. same way i did it with tim's except tim had the the players i did the writing and he hooked up the players but yeah it's you know and and again like all of this goes back to those first two years in williamsburg all these people torbit who's you know who's like the producer for the run the jewel stuff he lived he's one of the guys that lived like across the street and two doors down and had an apartment where where people were jamming all the time you know and it's uh yeah, it's like this weird, you know, I don't know. It's, it was just, I, I, I'm lucky, man. I moved to the right place at the right time. And, yeah. you know. And between all of this, you're working on your own work. You've got this awesome jazz stuff as Jeremy Wilms and your other solo stuff that's a little more, um, I don't say it, it's it's its own thing, really, as, as Jay Wilms. And right. these two worlds are coexisting and it's just i went back and i started listening to this stuff like um and, and i almost forgot nomoto which is prog right. heavy metal which is just i have no idea where the hell that came from like the 15 year old who was learning all the Judas priest shit <laughs> and, and that and the ruins, you know, like listening to, I, I got, I really got into the ruins for a minute. Like they're the Japanese band. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, you know, all those things kind of tying together. Okay. So we're going to hit on the new album in a minute here, but I've got some questions about this because the new album is a little different from the other two J Wilms albums and completely, completely different from the Jeremy Williams stuff. But I've just, I've realized that anything that you write with the word seeds in it, I love. So, <laughs> right, right. I've got a couple of, yeah. The song, so the, uh, the from the album, large format mm -hmm. seeds. I, mm -hmm. Oh, I love that song.
production and that trumpet is amazing. Yeah. But you also, on your song Dancer Pants, which the name makes me laugh. Anything with the word pants in it, I just kind of lose it. It's just laugh. <laughs> the Seeds from Dancer Pants. I think that's my favorite song on the album. It sounds like it's, oh, I shouldn't say it sounds, it looks from the release dates and all, like it's all coming, being made and released around the same time, like around the pandemic. Is that, is it, was it before the pandemic or? Well, the, uh, the songwriter stuff. So first of all, the, like splitting it up into two names. Now I'm like, why did I do that? You know, I was <laughs> trying to like make it easier for people to digest because it's so different. And like, I had this idea like, Oh, if someone likes the song born to die off my new record and they go. And the first thing they hear is like this kind of like fan horn fanfare that goes into like a complete heavy percussion thing. And there's never like a vocal, they're going to like turn it off. You know, that was my idea. And now I'm just like, okay, you know, I, I should know better by this point in my career, but <laughs> I, I have to roll with it at this point because that's how it is. There's no, it's like, the funny thing about the digital age is everything's changeable except for the things that aren't. And, uh, you know, but, um, yes. but yeah, they, so those two other, the two Jay Wilms records, those are actually kind of old. I just finally, I only had them on Bandcamp for a very long time. And then I just yeah. put them on spot on, um, did the digital distribution of the streaming platforms recently. Oh, okay. okay. So those are, so the chronology is like, there's a record called Diamond People that's like 2014. Jay Wilms records, which is, which is, uh, no one dreams alone. format and then we're up to the the new one and in there somewhere there's like two no moto records that i was making like simultaneously probably like six <laughs> six years ago or something like that um okay. but yeah i mean the thing yeah and this is as you can see this is why i've like sort of separated it all but then also i'm like it actually should all be like on Bandcamp. i try to keep it all in one place um and there are a couple other records that i did uh that that are only that are maybe not only on Bandcamp. There's one that's uh, 
sort of four part suite of like kind of weird stuff. I love initiate. Is it initiation? Yeah. 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 Initiation. And that four parts. is yeah. amazing. I love, oh. it. I was listening to that today at work. That is so good. Yeah. That was the early pandemic thing. That was like right when it, right when it hit and it, one of the first things I did. And then the, and then there's another one that's like sort of classical ish compositions and it's like a, it's like shit that I've done over like a decade uh, with different musicians playing stuff that I that I wrote. Right, I uh, did see that. That uh, that is beautiful stuff. Yeah. So all that it's you know, and this is what's is weird. It's like struggling with this because you know, like these. So, so the way I the way I kind of explain this to people is when I was first deciding I was going to kind of pursue music. I knew like, you know, I know what my voice sounds like, my singing voice. I'm aware. (laughs) I'm aware aware that I am not, you know, Pavarotti or whatever, or even, you know, Beyonce or even like, uh, yeah, Beyonce or, you know, um, (laughs) Jeff Buckley or anyone like that. Like, I I know, I know what I have and what I don't have, but I also like, that's the thing that I love to do. So my concept was like, I'll do the instrumental stuff. That'll be like my identity. I can do that. Well, I can present it on a level that I'm, I feel proud of. And then the songwriter stuff will be my own. That way it can be as weird as I want it to be. And I can sing however I want to sing because I'm not trying to be a singer. And so it sort of became this almost like a refuge from the other stuff. And those first two records were all, almost exclusively made in like hotel rooms and stuff while I was on tour. Yeah. All like carrying around a little interface and a little, um, like a little analog keyboard and whatever gear I had on whatever gig I was on, usually some kind of like pedal board with like, you know, six or seven things and running. And and there's, there's very little, like, uh, there's little, maybe no, midi on any of it it's all like actually played on if it's if it's a synth it's like an analog synth that i'm like traveling with or a digital synth but like plugged in you know like played not not midied right okay those yeah so those records were like just sort of things i would do when there was like you know if we were sitting in a town and we had two or three days off and i would just stay in a hotel room and you know wherever i was just just work on that. And just kind of as a sort of like getting away from whatever music I was playing, you know, night after night, especially when it was, you know, the theater stuff, which becomes very repetitive, even if it's music you love. Well, yeah. Cause um, you, you know, you don't have room to improvise really. Yeah. Not, not, not at all. <laughs> and if you do, it's like, a very brief moment. And then people get used to the way you improvise in that moment. And if you improvise differently, it's like, wait a second. There's, because there's like people, there's people relying on you, you know? Yeah. So it makes sense, but yeah, it's a, it's a thing, you know? The first two Jay Wilms albums are really cool. What if an MM law, I'm, I hope I'm saying yeah. that right. Yeah. Yeah. MM law. Yeah. Those, are, I, those are my two favorites off that. And I don't know if this, if it's fair to do this, but I've listened to the fighter first and then went back and listened to these. And so I'm comparing them to each other and, and they're so different, like uh motorcycle off of dancer pants. They're, they would not fit at all no. on the fighter. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you need like a third name for the fighter. You know, maybe <laughs> right. Jeremiah Wilkins. Jer, Jer bear Wilms or, or, you know, oh, totally. Something completely different, like Darcy Cunningham. Yeah. Completely, completely <laughs> yeah. different. 
Yeah, man. But I'll, uh, I'll take requests. <laughs> <laughs> just pick names. Like, do a name generator. Just every album yeah. is completely different. Hey, man, not a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, I'm teasing a little bit, but it, but it's true because yeah. the sound is so different. The uh, the new album, The Fighter, is there? That's that's a title track. title track slash title of the album, the fighters or something, a reason you called it the fighter. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically what this, so what, what happened with this record is a couple of these songs were sort of germinating for maybe like a year or two before the pandemic. But what happened with this stuff was when everything went down, the shit went down, we left, we, we left New York. We sold our, we, you know, we totally just like, sold our apartment to the lowest bidder just to get the hell out and came down to came back down and you know we don't even live in the city of atlanta we're like in the, in the northern suburbs it's pretty quiet where we are um, and you know i was just you know quite honestly i was just like man there was this thing that i was feeling about everything i just i put out the large format record in 2020 and there's like 40 musicians on that and it's like wow. highly highly orchestrated and you know there's all kinds of stuff on it and it was a lot it was like a ton of work it took a lot of time um you know and but i i came down here and i was like you know i've never done even when I've written singer songwriter stuff like motorcycle is a great example. Like none of it's like, everything's like super impressionistic, you know, it's like super, um, sort of like couched in metaphor or like dream sequences. And, and then production wise, it reflects that like mm -hmm. even the stuff that's like finger style guitar stuff will be, will have some weird, like backwards you know, distorted electric guitar solo feedback, you know, it's all right, like right. couched in something. And I just wanted, I, I heard this interview with Steve Earle and he was talking about, you know, talking to Johnny Cash and at some point Johnny Cash saying like, yeah, man, you, you just, you know, you write great, but you just gotta like, write something that people can relate to, you know, don't, don't be such a bummer all the time. basically. <laughs> Something like that. And it, I don't know, something about that interview kind of struck me. And I, I just started thinking like about writing things that were really direct about what I was kind of going through at that moment, which I feel like I've written a lot about things that I was going through. Like you mentioned the song MM Law, MM Law. That's about like a girl that I was just like, that just like kind of crushed me, you know, and I, at a, at a certain age that yeah. I thought it was something and then it wasn't, but it's all like couched in metaphors of war and, and all these things that are not concrete, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I started writing these songs sort of in my head in a lot of ways. Like I was walking a lot. I was just going for long walks and I would kind of come up with melodies and write words while I was walking and sort of memorize them. And I just sort of kind of would try to peel them back and peel them back. And the only song that on the record that came out, like there's two songs that came out sort of like in the old style, but they're produced differently. And that's props 
and Wolf Song, which are and Wolf Song, I was like, okay, this is going to be the one that's like the the most literary cliches I can squeeze into one place <laughs> at once, and I'm going to do it intentionally just to like get it out of the way. down the prey but it's gone long gone you are the spark that kindles my dismay then it's gone a whisper I've been searching all night long but everything else is like sort of straightforward, like even Born to Die, which is kind of like a funny, you know, like a, you know, it's like sort of funny, but it's actually like just true. You know, I'm like, what's the truest thing that I can put to words? So a lot of it, like a lot of what these songs are about are sort of like about that, about basically getting into something, kind of losing your focus or losing your way, doing something else, and then coming back to what it was in the first place. Because mm -hmm. if, you know, when I was like 15 or 16, I was trying to write songs with an acoustic guitar that had really great lyrics. And I was like, I'm terrible at this, but I'm pretty damn good at playing guitar solos. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do that, you know? And I just, you know, I'm just like at a point, you know, I got to the point where I was like, this is what I want to do. I met Bo Bedingfield, the drummer, who if you haven't checked out his shit, you should. He's fucking amazing guitar player, drummer and singer and songwriter. Okay. Yeah. I met him through a mutual friend. He's up in Athens and he like sent me a link to his record. And I was like, that's what I want the drums to sound like, you know? And he was like, well, I recorded that at a drummer's studio. And I was like, Oh, okay. Makes sense. He's like, and so I, you know, I went to that studio and it was, um, you know, this guy, Kyle Spence, who's the drummer for Kurt Vile. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Kyle is awesome. He's <laughs> funny. Kyle is like one of the, one of those people, there are a few of them, but they're there like no social media, no, no like internet presence whatsoever. Like wow. his studio, it's, it's kind of, his studio is kind of digital, but it's like the computer is just like a tape machine. You know, it's like not, <laughs> I mean, he does use some plugins, but it's basically like as analog as you can get, you know? And he just, knows how to get drum sounds man and so that was like i wanted that i wanted everything dry and right there in your face and not a ton there's like maybe two or three songs with like a few guitar overdubs but there's a lot of songs that are just like one guitar bass and drums and vocals yes. yeah. it's amazing like so you mentioned the wolf and first of all before before i even go into the wolf i the you, you're so right the songwriting in my notes i actually said the songwriting it sounds much more direct and raw, maybe raw is a little bit is the word i'm looking for it's which is why i said maybe it should maybe it should be a different name because it it is yeah. it, it sounds like a a different point of view or perspective in your songwriting and it i've fallen in love with this album the wolf particularly is one of my favorites it's a highlight for me because i love that that lonely sounding electric guitar in the background that that's just, yeah. Oh, that's, bo that's, bo well, so that's the only song that where there's one guitar that I'm not playing. So the kind of like surf guitar with the kind of like seasick bends and stuff, yes. that's Bo that's Bo playing guitar on oh, that. That's amazing. Which I did one, I did a show early on just playing solo and he, he sat in and my wife heard it and she's like, he has to play guitar on that song. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and the, yeah. the title track, I I love it because it, and you mentioned the the Kurt Vile influence because it's that actually to me sounds like a Kurt Vile song. Oh, that's that's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. It's, I was thinking like in a weird way, sort of like Tom Paxton or something like that. That sort of like you know, that's I got a lot of that through the kind of. I'm, I'm not like a bluegrass guy, but I've I've been exposed to a lot of it and that sort of thing where the bluegrass guys kind of play the Tom Paxton folk stuff, you know, that, that was worse. But, but, you know, Kurt Vile is like into all that stuff too. So. And his, his songwriting is nothing but direct. Yeah. So. It is 100% direct. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's funny because like, I didn't really, I mean, I heard, you know, a few songs of his, but I didn't really like get into him until after I started recording this with Kyle. And I was like, Oh, this is like, this is, who I should be listening to. Like, yeah, this is, this is my guy right here. Yeah. Oh, I, I love his stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. So this album you're saying is basically a, a very, it's a product of the pandemic. I, I don't know. Maybe you touched on it a little bit. Was that the, the cause for the shift in the songwriting tone? I mean, I, it's something I've, it, it, to be honest, it's something I've wanted to do for a while, like for yeah. probably four or five years. I mean, it's, you know, going back to Tim, it's something that I always admired about Tim Folion's music is it's just like, it's like that no matter how weird it is, it's like that. It's like raw and the lyrics are just like, you know, it's like having a conversation with someone or listening to someone. It's not, it's not like, but it also operates on like a, on a different sort of level, like a literary level as well. And I just, I've been wanting to do that for a while and, you know, it's, but I think having, I think having space where I didn't have to go, like, I think what was happening to me in New York is I was having to go to gigs five, six nights a week, whether I was in town or out of town and play stuff, play other people's stuff mostly. And when you do that, you don't really it's like when you have time to be like, what do I want to do? Then it's like, Oh, I have, I have two hours. What's something, what, what do I want to do? Oh, I want to explore these changes. And it, it was always like, what can I do more? You know, it was always, what can I do more? That was like my attitude towards my own music. What, what can I do more? Like they're doing this. What can I do? That's like different, but like more instead of, I got down here. I was just like, what can I do? That's like less, yeah. you know? And you know, what can I do? That's less. And how do I, what do I really want to do with music? You know, what, do, what do I really want to do? Cause now I don't have to worry about making a living at music cause nobody's making a living at music. You know, that's, that's so what true. the pandemic sort of gave to me in a lot of ways. And, um, and now it's like, I'm, I'm clear and it's weird. It's like, now I'm sort of clear that there's that direction. I also have some other sort of jazzy stuff that I want to try to do this year, but it's like, it's a little more clear to me. I'm like, um, Unless, you know, since Atlanta doesn't have the infrastructure the way New York does, you could, you can be a working musician. I know people that are, that are just running from gig to gig, yeah. but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm like finding other ways, you know, because it, that, that's sort of like, you know, the pandemic was terrible. Like no doubt we were in, I was in a neighborhood in Queens. The reason we left was because people were fucking dying in my building and shit, oh. you know? And I was just like, I got to get my kid out of here because yeah. I don't to like experience this in that way. And, um, but what it, it was horrible, but what it did 
give to me. And I think to some other people too, it gave me this sort of perspective on, you know, like, I don't know. It just gave me this perspective on what I really want to do and what I was doing up there sort of at the end. Most of my, I had, I had a really great touring gig that I loved, but it wasn't like super secure and it wasn't all the time. And I had a steady kind of theaterish gig at this place called the McKittrick hotel, which is like sleep no more. Um, I heard about that. That yeah. sounds crazy. It was, it's going to it close. It's, yeah, it's going to be done in February. I'm going to try to get back up there. But I mean, my, my role, it was, it was an awesome thing. And I went to see it as a spectator before I became involved in the business side of it. But I, I wound up being like a music director for uh, a, like kind of a late night party band there. But I also was a musician and they had a rooftop venue. And so it was kind of seasonal, but I was up there. Sometimes I'd be at, at that place, like, you know, five, six times a week playing music in different venues. They also had like a little jazz room at the beginning of the play. It's like, a, it was a little family. There were a lot of great people that worked there and, and I loved it. But most of my gigs there were either playing something extremely stylized, like, like forties, fifties jazz, don't step out of the box with singers, you know, right, like right. that or the brunch gig was led by this guy who was kind of like, he had a very specific, aesthetic and it was sort of like taking kind of mundane you know radio rock things and doing sort of jam bandy kind of psychedelic versions of them and it was fun you know but not not my thing you know and the late night band was this woman who was you know kind of did a grace jones ish kind of thing and had a lot of covers and once again it was super cool and anytime i'd see any of those things i'd be like these bands are killing. But when I was playing in them night after night, after night, after night, the feeling that I kept having every time I would come home at three in the morning, I'd be like, that's not my shit. You know, that's just not my shit. (laughs) It's it's someone else's shit. And I need the, I need the 350 bucks at the end of the night, whatever, but it's not my shit, you know? Um, It's it's a job and not you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I had fallen into that trap pretty hard. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, I mean, Hey, first of all, let me say like anyone that's able to do that. It's like a fucking blessing, man. Oh, yeah. I made a live at music in New York for like 25 years. Like, Hey, I would take nothing else. I don't care if no one knows what my name is. Yeah. I, I like what's that, you know, but it's also, if you're, and some people don't really have this, or they're better able to like compartmentalize their own thing and that thing. For me, it was hard to like separate myself from those situations. So what wound up happening to me is I wound up being musically frustrated because I was investing myself into something that wasn't my thing because I can't do, I can't do a gig and not invest myself into it. So it was like, it creates this weird, um, you know, like cognitive dissonance uh, where, where you really, you really do care. Like, just like any job, if I work at a grocery store, I care, you know, it's like whatever I'm doing. But at the same time, you, in the macro picture, you don't really care. You know, it's like, this is not, it's not taking you towards what you need to be. I mean, it's weird. It's like the pandemic sort of gave me a chance to like get closer, you know? And like I said, it's like, instead of squeezing my shit in between everyone else's shit, I actually had time to be like, 
this is for no reason other than for like, what do I need to do right now? And this is, this is a record that came out, you know? And I mean, it could have easily come out like a, you know, completely microtonal drone record made with like <laughs> electric drills and like guitar, <laughs> pedals, you know, but like, it, it you know, it, it didn't, this is what came out, you know? Well, I've been enjoying it so much and I really, I'm glad it came out the way it did. Uh, and I appreciate it. Are you planning on playing this anywhere uh, out? And I know you, you're in the Atlanta area. Uh, are you planning yeah. on expanding if you do play out? Yeah. I, so I'm just about, I, I just came off this crazy new sort of thing. My, my wife is a filmmaker and I'm kind of working with her. So I've been bogged down, but literally this week I'm starting to send out emails. You know, I'm kind of like a, not a total one man operation, but mostly. So I'm starting to send out emails. This is my concept. I have a, a, a record release show in Atlanta a month after the record comes out, of course, um, <laughs> on, on January 10th at a, ba- a place called Buteco in East Atlanta Village, which is a great place run by a Brazilian musician uh, named Rafael, who's they, they're just awesome. So we're going to do we're going to do a show there. And then on January 26th, I'm going to do a kind of like solo kind of more intimate sort of songwriter night with, with my friend Bo at, there's a, um, a Buddhist center down here that does, does sort of like, it's kind of like modeled on the, um, living room, you know, touring living, living room musician kind of vibe. So you kind of your own beer and, you know, it's, you can pay what you want to the musicians. And, and, um, so I'm going to do that on the 26th. Um, that's in kind of in the midtown Atlanta area. It's the Atlanta Soto, uh, Soto Zen center. Um, and then what I'm planning on is late February, early March. What I'd like, what the emails going out are going to be is Knoxville, Asheville, Athens, and I, Maryville, Tennessee, which is weird, but there's like a bookstore there that does stuff. And oh, cool. um, maybe Nashville, although I like, I kind of, I mean, is it, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not going to go play a, an open mic at right. Nashville. So if I can, if, if someone <laughs> gives me a gig that's better than an open mic night, I'll do it. But right. really just like, you know, four and, you know, four or five cities down here. And then I'll go to New York and do like a couple shows up there. So that's, that's the, that's the big plan, but it's going to be March probably, you know, I'm, I'm just, I just did, I had, I wanted the record out and I'm going to then work on the two, you know, since I'm doing it myself, that's the, that's kind of the concept. I completely understand doing the uh, DIY aspect of this kind of thing. I'm not a musician. I'm a very bad self-taught guitar player, but I'm more of a photographer, but I kind of, I know what you mean. And, the podcast is the same way everything I book, everything myself, I do everything myself. So, so yeah. I can appreciate the, uh, the effort that you're, you have to make to get this thing underway. So where is the best place for people to follow you to pick up the album, listen to it and, and check you out maybe on social media, if they can find out the tour dates where they can see it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I have a website that is Jeremy It's pretty easy. And there is links to everything there. My favorite place to listen to the music, even if you're not gonna, uh, purchase it is Bandcamp because you know Bandcamp and we'll hopefully they'll keep doing it the way they're doing it the thing i like most about them is if you do want to 
give me some money for it. Like if you like it enough to pay for it, you can, I have 96 K 24 bit wave files up there. So you can download super high quality audio as opposed to like a shitty MP3, you know, depending, (laughs) not everyone's like a digital audio file, but I sort of feel like if you are, you can do that. And then finally, um, I will have, vinyl eventually, but I'm doing, you know, like I said, this is DIY. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm kind of fixing this thing on my website to be able to take pre-orders. So I'm trying to get like, you know, a certain number of pre-orders where I can just go ahead and put in the order for, for a short run of vinyl. Um, and I want to do it right. Like I want a good, I want a good, uh, sleeve and I want like heavy vinyl. I don't want it to be crappy. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's the concept. It's all, I'm doing it as I can. And, you know, but I, I do the, the kind of goal is to have the vinyl by March, by the time I do these little tours nice. and, you know, and the lastly, like I, I only, I am on Facebook, but I never look at it. I just link everything through Insta through Instagram. Oh, I love um, Instagram. Yeah. It's the only one. I mean, sometimes I get caught in the, in the wormhole and I've <laughs> 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by, but usually I'm able to like look at it and get off of it. Um, but I, I do like it for promotional things because I find it easy to sort of, you know, shoot something out, link it to Facebook, have all the info I need in the body, have a link in my bio, you know, it's like, the, it's pretty, it's kind of the easiest one. So my Instagram is J E R E underscore Wilms, which is, you know, that was the best I could get because apparently there are other Jeremy Wilms out there, which apparently is weird. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that should be the, the next album should be Jer Wilms. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this has been a blast. I'm loving the album. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me this evening, taking time out of your, your evening to, to talk to me about your career. Cause it's, so unique it's it's so varied and wild i've been, i've just enjoyed not just the new album but going back and listening to the jazz stuff and the the afro beats it's just so good thank you so much for, for your time i appreciate you man thank you i really appreciate it i'm gonna sit and write a song it's gonna be epic and strong It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.